Hello, comedians, humorists, cartoonists, and tragedians. I'm Grant Faulkner, executive director of this cavorting funny event called National Novel Writing Month, which is actually full of mayhem and murder, stories full of tension and tragedy, conflicts gushing like a biblical flood. But some of this tragedy is funny, believe it or not, or can be funny. And this is something I'm intrigued by as a writing principle, but also a general human life principle how and why some of our worst experiences can become comedic. And I'm thinking about this today, Brooke, because our guest, David Cypress, is a celebrated New Yorker cartoonist, and many of his cartoons are spawned by the painful moments of his life. David just wrote a memoir titled, What's So Funny?, which begs the question, uh, why some of our most painful moments are funny. Uh, there's a famous quote often attributed to Mark Twain, uh, humor equals tragedy plus time. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And the quote made me think that although we generally think of memoir as being full of harrowing stories of illness and addiction and family dysfunction, there's also room to explore all of these subjects through a comedic lens. And so I'm curious, Brooke, is there a genre of the humorous memoir? And if so, you know, what's one of your favorites? I mean, there are humorous memoirs. It's just not its own genre or even necessarily subgenre of memoir insofar as there's no category in memoir for funny or humor like there is in straight up nonfiction essays where there's actually a humor category. Uh, and interestingly, the only books that I know that are categorized as humor by publishers and therefore housed in the humor section, if you happen to be perusing bookstores that still have that, are writer comedians, you know, people like Phoebe Robinson, Tig Notaro, David Sedaris, or Mindy Culling. You know, these are just some of the well-known names of people who also have books that are, are funny writing books. Uh, no, sorry, not funny writing books, but funny books. Uh, and the other thing, you know, is I, well, I always think of this is that it's very hard to be funny in writing. And so those who do it well are a very special breed of writer. And of course, I've read many, many memoirs that are infused with humor. And it doesn't have to be and often isn't the laugh out loud kind. As you said, there's humor and tragedy and irony is funny and things that happen to people that make your jaw drop can be funny. <laughs> you know, and I'm certainly not the only person in the world who finds funny in strange places. We all do. And I guess that's probably just a coping mechanism of being human. Ebrick, I'm interested when you said there's a humor category, <laughs> which for nonfiction, and I'm thinking, wow, we put our, you know, humor is its own category. Should there be a tragedy category or a sad category <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like if we, if we, if we organize a bookstore by, by that kind of label, it'd be quite a different experience. Um, but I was thinking about this as you're talking and I'm thinking there are three different types of humorous and I'm going to call them memoirs, but I guess nonfiction there's a whole category, essentially, for those written by comedians and cartoonists. I'm thinking of books by like comedians like Ali Wong or Steve Martin or the cartoonist Roz Chast and Alison Bechtel or David Cypress. And in fact, it seems like almost like a rite of passage for comedians these days to write a comedic memoir or comedic collection of essays of sorts. I don't think you're fully anointed a comedian until you've done that. But then there are books written by what I'll call humorists. And these are people who aren't performers. They're writers, you know, like David Sedaris, um, Samantha Irby, Bill Bryson, Akilah Hughes, Nora Ephron. 
And then there's a third category, and this is what I'm thinking and I'm grappling with, you know, a memoir by someone who isn't a comedian or a famous humorist or a celebrity, someone who just has a funny take on life. And Brooke, this is like the area I'm wondering about and what I think is like really challenging for what you said about it being hard to write funny on the page. So I'm curious, can I write a memoir about my addiction or my illness and give it a funny slant and still publish it if I don't have a funny personal brand? You know, like who gets to be funny? Absolutely, you can. Uh, you know, I just finished reading a manuscript that uh, it's not published yet. The book is essentially a coming of age memoir that centers the fact that the writer's father wanted to have an open marriage in the 1970s. It's quite funny and tragic, right? Because he was a real player and his wife and the other women in his life went along with it, but often none too happily. And so there comes a point when the writer is a teenager and the other woman, another woman moves in and her observations of this situation are hilarious, but they're also darkly hilarious. Like it is not funny because the mother is pissed. The two women are often at each other. The dad is kind of a jerk about the whole thing. And the protagonist, you know, who's a young teen at the time is also super embarrassed by this turn of events. And at the same time, her clear eyed observations, of the dynamics of the human beings at the center of this story are very, very funny. Uh, and But this doesn't mean that I was laughing you know, or delighting in this fraught marriage, but I was very appreciative of the nuance and the complexity of how humans <laughs> bend themselves and why and that the writer could articulate all of that. So that was definitely cool. And she's just someone I'm working with. Uh, and I think a lot of authors are able to do that kind of wry observation. Mary Carr is famous for that in all of her memoirs. Uh, and I've always remembered one of the blurbs from the Liars Club that described Mary as a crackerjack observer of her own dysfunction, you know, or something along those lines. And, and that's the kind of funny that I think a lot of memoirists do pull off, you know, the funny of wallowing in the complete abnormality of your situation and other famous writers who come to mind for me in this space are Jeanette Winterson. Uh, her memoir is called Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, which is a funny title. Uh, and then if our former guest, Mira Jacob, whose book Good Talk is a kind of hybrid graphic memoir, which is also serious and funny. And then another Jeanette, Jeanette Walls, who wrote The Glass Castle, which is funny, oftentimes in a very outrageous kind of way. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Mira Jacob Brook because one of the things uh, David Cypress does with his memoir, which I really enjoyed, was to sprinkle cartoons throughout it. And it's as if his cartoons are in conversation with his life story. So you see connections between his life and art in a way you wouldn't if you were just paging through a New Yorker and reading the cartoons. And I know it's hard to describe a cartoon, but one thing I wanted to talk about is the way a single cartoon panel can capture this much larger story. And I think of it as very similar to my like flash fiction stories, you know, or flash fiction stories in general, what they aim to do. They're almost like a single cartoon panel. And one of my favorites of David's is a man who is experiencing insomnia, something I've experienced a lot of. And the, the drawing shows all sorts of worries essentially attacking him, you know, things from personal finance worries to global crisis worries. And then his wife has turned away from him and she's obviously kind of fed up with him. And she tells him, just quit thinking about it. And, and it's one of those perfect moments that shows the chasm between two people that 
happens even when they're close to each other because he can't possibly turn it off or, you know, that's just way too simple of advice to just turn it off as any insomniac knows. And so the memoir, you know, also made me think about how, how we have these big life stories, but the big life story is made up of a lot of scenes and how, how life is lived in these, these moments, these scenes. Mm, yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally. Scene, scene, scene. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is uh, why reading all kinds of books is so enlightening for writers and graphic memoir actually forces you to see those scenes in ways that you might not otherwise through prose. And that could actually be very helpful for some writers who are struggling to wrap their mind around scene because you can look at those panels as little mini episodes or scenes because you can extrapolate so much from them. Um, and David Cypress and other famous cartoonists like him create a whole world in a single panel, you know, a whole experience. And it's just good food for thought about the elements that need to be included in a scene in order for your reader to feel grounded, right? Like a sense of place, who's there, what's going on in the background, all of those kinds of things. Uh, and I'm particularly fond of cartoons that comment on the writing process. And, and David does this in his memoir. Uh, I loved this, that there's this cartoon in the introduction of his book that shows a man lying on his therapist's couch and therapy plays a big role in the memoir. And the therapist is saying to his patient, pointing to a woman in a corner uh, of the panel, that's Eleanor. She's a fact checker. <laughs> <laughs> it's so perfect for memoir. And anyone who writes memoir will surely love that. You know, it's just in that simple brushstroke, he captures a tension between our perception of truth and what might be a more factual truth. And that, of course, is important in both therapy and memoir writing. And it's a lot to poke fun at the very thing you're doing, too. And it's kind of a wink, wink to your reader. It's very inviting. You know, I mean, it, it makes him likable because there's that self-deprecating uh, aspect to it. And I just think his stuff is so smart. Yeah, that's a very good thing to remember, self-deprecation and its role in humor. Before we talk to David, I just want to mention one more cartoon, which I think every writer will relate to. It, it shows uh, an editor sitting in the office with, with the author, and the editor is sitting with a huge stack of papers on his desk. And he, he, he tells the writer in his office, pointing to the middle of the stack, right here is where you lost the narrative flow. <laughs> and I just thought every author has experienced that, you know, that, that ambition represented by the huge stack of papers, but somehow losing it all right in the middle and getting this sort of painful feedback that you have to go back to the drawing board. Um, and that's where I think, you know, a painful moment becomes uh, comedic with time passing. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, David's going to speak to that. I am very interested about this intersection between tragedy and humor. And we'll get to talk a lot more about that after this very short break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today because I've been reading his cartoons in The New Yorker for years. In fact, since he's been a staff cartoonist at The New Yorker um, since 1998, where he has published uh, nearly 700 cartoons. And, and David also lectures widely on cartooning and his autobiographical writing has appeared frequently uh, in The New Yorker. And I learned about David's memoir from an interview he did with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. So I'm, I'm super excited to welcome David to Fresh Air. Welcome, David. Not to fresh air, to right-minded. <laughs> Terry Gross? Terry Gross is here with us today, special guest on Right-Minded. Uh, special Perfect. surprise. 
yeah, someday maybe for me, but that must have been a thrill for you. It was really amazing, actually. I, I never expected it. It was great. But it paid off because I had done a cartoon about her, and I thought, I'll send it to her and see what happens. And I think that was the key. Oh, uh, cool. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Brooke and I will expect cartoons of us as well, so we'll look for those in the mail. Um, but David, I, I want to start at the beginning when you first decided to write this book. You have you have a great cartoon of a woman sitting in front of a computer with a very worried look on her face, and and on her computer screen we see the words "Nothing interesting has ever happened to me: colon a memoir." And, and, and I wanted to see if you, if, did you feel this way when you started writing your memoir? And I'm, I'm curious if you have any advice for those interested in writing a memoir about, you know, how to identify your story and then believe in it enough to write it. Yeah, that, that is the way I felt. Uh, uh, not every day, but a lot of the time, because getting started was really hard. And I don't think I'm alone in that sentiment that you sort of sit down and you're going to write a memoir and you just after a while, you start to think your life wasn't just interesting enough. But um, what I found was the key to that was just to write, just to jump in and start writing. And the more I wrote, the more that these stories I'd been rattling around in my head since I was a kid began to emerge. Um, and after a while, I, I thought, well, maybe I have lived a somewhat interesting life. <laughs> and uh, so it took it took a few months for me to get past that. But I got really into the adventure of writing it, and that cured that worry. Well, David, one of the interesting things I think all of us have to write about in some ways is our relationship to our parents. And you open part one of your memoir with a cartoon of a young man sitting in a living room with his parents. And the father says, we've been thinking about what we want to do with your life. <laughs> uh, and this cartoon obviously speaks to the tension that exists between parents and children when a parent has a particular desire for their child that might differ from what the child wants. So was that drawn from your personal inspiration with your own parents? And, you know, what was that relationship in terms of how they shaped or inhibited or motivated your art? Well, it's it's exactly drawn from my family situation. Uh, in particular, my, my father was an immigrant. And like many immigrants of his generation, he had very, very clear ideas of what he wanted his son to turn out to be. And cartoonist was not on that list. And so I went through a rather rigorous academic education and um, wound up in graduate school at Harvard and then came to the terrible day when I, I realized I was in, living the wrong life and called my father to tell him that I was dropping out of Harvard, something he must have told every single customer that came into his store for, you know, forever. Uh, and um, it was a terrible phone call and he cursed me. And we didn't speak for a very long time after that. And that's when I really became clear, something I'd known all along, that he was not asking me what I wanted to do. He had his own particular plan for me. Uh, and that was a hard thing for me to come to terms with. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a struggle a lot of people have. Since I put the book out, a lot of people have been in touch with me saying, they went through something similar uh, with their parents. 
Well, that's interesting. I mean, I'm very intrigued in this subject of parental relationships and expectations. And there's another uh, cartoon of yours that's a favorite of mine. And it's a little boy standing in front of a chalkboard. And he's given the wrong answer to the uh, problem of seven times five. He puts it as 75, not 35. And the teacher is correcting him. And he says, it may be wrong, but it's how I feel. Yes. (laughs) And I think that hits about five different notes of humor. Uh, But I also know that it's specific in in your life that you – weren't so good at math and maybe even unconsciously, you know, kind of self-sabotaging that side not to meet up to uh, parental expectations. But I guess what I'm curious about is that, you know, you're obviously taking things that are very personal, but you're making, you're opening them up so that everyone can relate to them. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you consciously think about that as you're drawing something for the New Yorker or is it more personal? Well, I, it's just a lifelong habit that I learned as a young man that as far as my humor goes, the more personal the joke, the bigger the laugh that I get. It's not true of everybody, but it's my go-to place where I've always gone to when I sit sit down at my desk every week and try to come up with my batch for the New Yorker. I I don't sit down and think, oh, I'll do a funny joke today. No, I, I sit down and I think, what did I experience this week? What did I experience 40 years ago? How did I feel about what that person said to me? And it's those kinds of thoughts that lead to cartoons. And what's kind of miraculous about it that I that I learned a long time ago was that if you put something out there like that, people connect to it. A little voice in their head said, well, I've experienced that too. And yet you do it in a way that's surprising. And that kind of combustible combination creates the laugh. Uh, and... I've always depended on the fact that I'm able to make that connection with my readers and and always have been kind of amazed that all I have to do is look inwards to to find a way to make people laugh. That's also just great advice for other people when they're thinking about what's funny and why something is funny. Uh, so So thanks for that little tidbit. And you know, Grant and I were struck that success was far from an immediate thing for you. In fact, you submitted cartoons to The New Yorker for 25 years and had them regularly rejected before you finally got one accepted. And I think that's a truly heroic tale of resilience. And I'd love to know, you know, were you able to just keep believing that you would get one through? And did you dare to believe that you would one day become an established New Yorker cartoonist as you are now? Well, the answer to that is a, is slightly complicated. For one thing, I not only at age six, seven, or eight decided I was going to be a cartoonist, I decided I was going to be a New Yorker cartoonist. <laughs> I loved the magazine. We got it every week. I would draw cartoons and cut them out and paste them in my mother's magazines over the Steigs and the Steinbergs and the Saxons. And that was always my fantasy was to be a New Yorker cartoonist. And if you do what I do, the single panel cartoon, there was always has been and I think only will be the New Yorker. It's it's the goal. It's the top of the mountain. Everything else kind of pales in comparison. So the idea of giving up during those 25 years never really occurred to me because I I for one thing, I knew I just would never feel good about myself if I didn't keep trying and get in there. And I would never be able to consider myself a success if I didn't. And also, kind of touching on what you said, I always thought I was good enough. You know, I kind of thought, well, it's their problem. Someday somebody's going to figure out that I belong in The New Yorker. And 
it took 25 years and the the exit of one cartoon editor and the entrance of a new one for uh, that to turn around for me. And I, and I have to tell you that when I opened the magazine and saw my first cartoon in there, I just thought, okay, that's it. I've done it. What I've always wanted to do. That's so great. I I love uh, the it's their problem because that also speaks to your own sense of self-confidence, which had to have fueled that 25 years of facing rejection. Yeah. I mean, there are many things in my life, my wife would tell you, my friends, that I lack self-confidence about. Uh, In fact, I've made a lot of cartoons about my lack of self-confidence about certain things. But about my cartoons, for some reason, I've always felt that they were good and certainly good enough. um, I've never had a single moment of doubt about them. And uh, that's a real gift. Uh, I don't know where that comes from, but I've always, I've always believed that uh, I was good enough. Well, David, I recently saw the movie Tick, Tick, Boom, and, and, and in it, Andrew Garfield, he stars as the rent creator, Jonathan Larson. And I loved one scene that actually made me think of, of your book. And in, in the scene um, I'm thinking about, his girlfriend is literally breaking up with him and going through all the problems she's having with him. And, and, but, but halfway through that, she, she starts to notice that he's literally starting to compose a song about what happened (laughs) in real time. And, and you've talked about your cartoon brain and how it never shuts off. And I have to say that my writer brain resembles uh, Andrew Garfield's at times in that it searches for the good story in the midst of real life and sometimes inappropriately. So I was just wondering if you could tell us about you and your, you know, how your cartoon brain proceeds through life. Well, I, I identified it in the book as a kind of compulsion and I created a parallel in the book to my father. He had his compulsion, which was to bargain in every situation, including a life-threatening one. That, um, And I was kind of similar about the cartoons. Um, can't stop the cartoon brain. Can't stop it in therapy. Can't stop it in yoga class. And uh, I think maybe what you're thinking of or what I wrote about was having an, a, a knockout, drag-out fight with my wife once. She's a lawyer, and she is very concerned with issues of right and wrong and often brings those up uh, in a particular way in our arguments. And so we were arguing, and she suddenly looked at me, and she said, David, you're not thinking up a cartoon right now, are you? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not possible. I Certainly not. And then about a month later, she opened the magazine and saw the cartoon of a man and a woman having an argument. And the, and the man is saying, well, if it doesn't really matter who's right and who's wrong, why don't I be right and you be wrong? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and I do, um, I do find that there's a little part of me in almost every situation, even in appropriate situations, where I'm also trying to think, what's funny about this? What can I use about this situation? Uh, it's a kind of way of life uh, with me. Well, it's a perfect uh, segue to my closing question, because one of the things that's so funny about what you just shared, of course, is the caption uh, and cartoons. You know, I think one of the things about them that's underappreciated is that art of writing the caption, how precise the words and rhythm need to be. And you don't have much space, of course. And so how did a lifetime of creating cartoon captions influence your writing and storytelling? I'm really glad you said that because uh, not enough people do recognize that it, it's an art and of itself. Word placement, word rhythm, what to leave out, what to put in. These are all issues that we cartoonists struggle with because 
these little lines of dialogue are, are, are thin filaments that can be disrupted and torn apart by anything that gets in the way of the readers enjoying it. And when I first started writing the book, I thought, well, God, all I've ever written are these one-line captions. How will I write a book? But what was interesting was that where I felt really liberated in my writing was when I was writing dialogue. I never look up from the page till I'm done when I'm writing a, a, an episode in the, in, in the form of dialogue. And I think it's the 10,000 cartoon captions I've written in my life that have given me the skill of, of capturing the way people speak and, um, and just the way they interact through speech. And that, that's been a great gift for me when I wrote this book, that at least there was one part of it that just went smoothly all the time, every time somebody opened their mouth. So, yeah. Well, that's great, David. Thank you so much. And we're so thrilled to have you and wish you continued success with the memoir. Yeah, big thanks, David. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Hey everybody, today's book trend was sort of dropped into our laps given this week's topic, and, and that trend is graphic memoirs are on the rise. Uh, but this actually came as a surprise to the industry, because in 2020, at the start of the pandemic, things weren't looking too good for cartoonists and illustrators. In fact, comic shops uh, were being shuttered by the hundreds, and cartoonists were canceling book tours along with everyone else. Comic-Con was canceled, although held virtually. But graphic memoirists and novelists have uh, now come out swinging, Brooke, and, and there's some real success stories in the past couple of years in this space. Yeah, that is definitely true. And it's a genre that's cool, too, because it's for adults and kids. And the experience of a graphic book is a unique one insofar as it plays to all of the senses, which I really like about it. Uh, and another trend that's a trend within this trend is the rise of graphic books by writers of color. And a couple that have broken out uh, are Almost American Girl by Robin Ha, which is an illustrated memoir about uh, Robin relocating from South Korea to Alabama as a teenager. Quite a lot of good story there. Uh, and then New Kid by Jerry Craft, which is classified as a novel, but it feels very memoiry to me. Uh, and that one has been on the reading list of every 11-year-old I know, and I know a lot of 11-year-olds. <laughs> so James and all of his friends have read that one, and it's really, really great. Yeah, there are a lot of graphic novels that feel very memoiry, and and there are a lot of important books that are are tackling the immigrant experience and racism and other heavy topics that are packaged in ways that allow for more more visibility and with younger readers, and that's such a good thing. And in that same vein, Brooke, there have been some breakout LGBTQ graphic memoirs as well. I'm thinking notably of the times I knew I was gay, which fits the theme of today's show because it's very funny. And then the more serious, the fire never goes out by Noelle Stevenson, you know, which is billed as being about the highs and lows of being a creative human in the world and tackles growing up and mental illness in a poignant way that's, you know, totally kid appropriate. Yeah. And what I love most about graphic memoirs, uh, because I have an incoming middle schooler and he is just not going to sit down and read a 200 or 300 page memoir at this point in his life, but he will read these graphic memoirs. And they're, as you said, or we're saying, they circle really profound topics through pictures. And as a parent, I'm very grateful for that. And so about this trend, I say, let's keep it going. 
Yeah, I think this applies to adults as well, Brooke. And I think adults, you know, need to give themselves permission more often to read a graphic story instead of a text-based story. Because I, I think sometimes adults think that that a graphic novel or graphic story is lesser than or, or that it's just for kids. And I want to urge people to give yourself permission to, to engage in, in this form of storytelling. Because, you know, so many graphic memoirists and novelists are just tremendous writers and storytellers. And, you know, they're, they're just able to show that story through art in a very singular way. So I have a lot of admiration uh, for this pool of talented folks. My gosh, me too. Uh, so thank you, Grant. And listeners, thank you also. Uh, let us know if you've read a graphic memoir novel in the past year that you've loved. We're always looking for listener recommendations. In fact, I just got one last week uh, and I'm pursuing that guest for the fall. And that was a kind of fun email to get. And Grant, we're into summer now. So happy summer, everyone. We hope that you're enjoying summer beach reads, summer reading challenges, or maybe just summer downtime staring at your window at nothing as you listen to your favorite writing podcasts. We're here for that every single week and we'll be back again next week. So until then.